reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 17. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also to plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in us what is seen rather than it what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Thank you very, very much, Sam. Do keep that open on page 1161 because we'll be studying that passage together today. My name's Nathan, and I'm one of the ministers here at Trinity. If we haven't met, really, really good to see you here. I'd love to chat after the service. For those of you uh, who like sort of planning, knowing where we're going, I'm, I'm one of those people. Three more weeks in 2 Corinthians in this little section, and then Advent service on the 5th of December. Yes, Christmas is nearly here. So three more services uh, looking at 2 Corinthians until we little, take a little break from that until the new year. You're the kind of person that likes that. If not, I've told you that anyway. There we go. I'll pray to God, and then we look at this passage together. A prayer from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. When we, when we give our time when we give our energy towards something, whatever it might be, knowing why we're doing what we're doing is, is absolutely essential, isn't it? We need motivations, we need reasons. I don't know if you were checking through that question in your groups about that a minute ago. Let me give you an example. A, a, a primary school child who's learning to play the violin and they're playing scales, I say playing scales, they're kind of you know, so screeching out the scales. It sounds like a strangled cat. It, a bad teacher would say, come on, you just need to keep going, then you might pass the exam, just, just do it. A good teacher would say, well, no, keep going with the scales because I know it's quite tedious for everyone at the moment, but one day you might be able to play Beethoven in an orchestra or more likely Bieber in a band or, you know, whatever it might be. Or, or think of it a secondary school child. I don't know if you had this, trying to learn French, French verbs. I mean, I wasn't very good at that at all. And, and a bad teacher would say, come on, just learn the French verbs for the exam at the end of the year. A good teacher would say, I know these verbs are hard to learn, but, but if you keep going, 
Well, then next year, when we go on the school trip in year 10, on the school exchange, you might actually be able to talk to someone. I mean, at least a few phrases to tell them that your sister's got brown hair or whatever it might be. <laughs> or have a pen pal that you can write to. See, knowing why we're doing what we're doing, scales or verbs or whatever it might be, is absolutely essential, isn't it? And with all the ups and downs, the same is true with Christian ministry, and particularly with the work of evangelism, that is sharing the good news about Jesus. See, without motivations, without reasons, we're just, we're just going to hit a brick wall and want to give up. I remember a friend of mine, Richard, um, he hadn't been a Christian for long, just uh, a few months, and at his church they were running an event, and, and someone gave him 500 flyers for the event, and said, look, by the end of the day or by the end of the weekend, you'll need to have handed all these flyers out, okay? And, you know, okay, he took these flyers. Um, he didn't really know why he was supposed to give these out, what the event was. Uh, he just felt guilty about approaching people, felt a bit awkward about it. Oh, it was under pressure, and he, the whole experience wasn't particularly enjoyable. No one had given him a motivation or a reason for such a thing. <laughs> Maybe you've been at, at Trinity um, for a few weeks or been here fairly recently. Maybe you wonder why we often bang on about things like Life Explored or Christianity Explored courses. Or at the back there, the, the flyers for the Christmas service. We won't give you 500 to give out. Well, maybe we will. No, no. Uh, 500 flyers. But the flyers at the back for Christmas, you know, why do we always talk about inviting people and, and kind of getting the message out there and sharing the gospel? Maybe you've never heard the why, the motivation. Maybe it all feels a little bit too intense. Can't we just let people come in if they want and leave it at that? Well, in this passage, we see three, three motivations that got Paul, the Apostle Paul, out of bed in the morning. Three motivations, reasons that will, will help us as well jump on board with this kind of ministry because knowing why we're doing what we're doing is absolutely essential. If you've been around them for the last few weeks or months, we've been going through this book of 2 Corinthians, and we've seen that the relationship between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthians has been bumpy at best. It's unusually autobiographical. Paul's been talking about himself a lot because he's wanted to defend his ministry. Back in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, we saw him defending his integrity his godliness, the fact that he just preached simply when he was with them. And he wants them, at last we'll see in a few weeks' time, he wants them to open their hearts to him. Elsewhere he puts it, he wants them to boast in him. And if you look at, down at verse 12 in our passage, we're back to that central theme. He tells us why he's writing. Can you see at the beginning of verse 12, we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us. He wants them to take pride, to boast in his kind of ministry that we've seen is weak and unflashy. And he wants them and us to have the kind of confidence that will back this ministry to the hilt, that will give our lives to this kind of ministry because it's glorious. And so in this passage, as I said, we, we get a window, a window into why it is that, that Paul keeps going, that he perseveres, why he gets out of bed in the morning, and why as a church we should 
not just get out of bed, but jump on board with this kind of ministry as well. So three motivations that we're going to work through that should be on your service sheets there as well. Motivation one, fear of the Lord. Have a look down at verse 11 where we started. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Sam started reading, didn't he, at verse 11. But whenever we read since then or however or that kind of word, it's important that we look back. What's he referring to? What's he talking about? And actually, we see that in verse 10, as Jeremy reminded us last week, that here, well, it's a serious reminder that Paul and actually all Christians will one day give an account before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ on our ministry, how we've used our life. And this judgment to come for Christians, Paul says, leads him to fear the Lord. We don't sort of use that language a lot, do we, anymore? Fearing the Lord. Uh, I think a previous generation uh, would have said, oh, you know, Ethel, Ethel passed away a couple of weeks ago. But Ethel was a God-fearing woman. You know, you would hear that kind of phrase being used. And w- what Paul means by fearing the Lord isn't that we sort of cower and a dread and a worry before God. It's more a reverence and an awe as we think about standing before such a holy God. It's really important just to underline here that this uh, judgment for Christians is not about our destiny, but it's about our stewardship. Okay, so Romans 8 verse 1, for example, would say, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian, your, your future is utterly secure and endless joy for all believers, is before us. Yet Paul does say that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. To give an account before God on how we've used our resources, our gifts, opportunities. And Paul said this motivates him. It spurs him on and it should do the same for us as well. And because he's got one eye on the future, one, one eye is what to come. Did you see what that leads him to in verse 11? It leads him to try to persuade others or, or appeal to others. Have you ever read through the book of Acts before? Um, there's a kind of spread of the gospel in the early church and, and scattered throughout that book in a variety of settings. This is exactly what Paul does, right? He, he tries to persuade, to win people over with the good news of Jesus Christ. He doesn't use secret or, or shameful ways. Integrity matters. But because he fears the Lord, because people's destinies are on the line, matters of life and death, he, he seeks to persuade others. He says that this persuasion is in light of eternity. He's, it's an open book. He's an open book. And he, he says that in verse 11. It's plain what he's doing before God, and he hopes it's plain towards the Corinthians as well. And notice he's telling them all of this because he wants them to to take pride, to boast in his kind of ministry. Maybe we hear this and think, it's a bit un-British, isn't it? A bit awkward to get someone to boast in your ministry or something like that. Well, there is a deliberate irony here. The, The critics of Paul's ministry They boasted in outward appearance, what is seen. But Paul wants the Corinthians to boast and get behind what unflashy 
authentic gospel ministry that comes from a sincere heart. And verse 13 illustrates that. Let me read verse 13 again. It says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. It's a bit of a tricky verse that I was pondering this week. What exactly does this mean? Well, I think it's this, that Paul's opponents, they thought that proper ministry, sort of real McCoy ministry, was all about ecstatic spiritual experiences. But Paul didn't. Paul could have boasted in speaking in tongues, you know, heavenly languages or, or revelations and visions. But that was between him and God. To the Corinthians, he wanted to be seen in his right mind, just to stick to, to basic persuasion. He didn't want the Corinthians' confidence to be in this you know, exotic spiritual experiences, but, but rather in the plain, straightforward preaching of the gospel. And even when people were accusing him, does he care? Well, not really. <laughs> no, he sought to persuade others, yes, but he was doing this for, for God's verdict, not for what other people think. Paul feared the Lord. And in light of this judgment to come, we should too. And we should seek, as Paul did, to persuade others. It's worth asking, stopping and asking every now and then, isn't it? What, what stops us seeking to persuade other people with the good news of Jesus? Three things, that you probably think of more. Three things that, that came to mind for me. One, fear of other people. Anyone else have that? Or was that just me? <laughs> fear of what other people might think of me. We thought about this in small groups a bit. At least our group did on Tuesday night in Luke chapter 12. I, I want to be seen often as a, a nice bloke and not too intense and kind of playing it cool. You probably think I'm failing drastically, all of those things. But, but that's how I sort of want to be seen. And so that will sometimes lead me not to seek to persuade someone because they might just think, oh, Nathan, that's a bit full on. That's a bit intense. Maybe you have that as well. Second thing might be, well, maybe we're not sure what to say. I, I want to persuade someone, but I just don't, don't know how to. I don't know what to say. <laughs> well, the weekly email that comes each week on a Friday, I'm sure every single one of you have read all the way down to the bottom. I won't look at anyone's eyes at this point. But right at the bottom, there's always a little, the last three or four weeks, there's been a, a link to a video. And it's produced by an organisation called Passion for Life. And and these videos are about 10, 12 minutes long, and they're for ordinary Christians like you and me to help us to think how we might persuade others, how we might share the good news of Jesus. And you might think, well, 10 to 12 minutes, I mean, that's a long time, isn't it? I bet we go on Facebook or Twitter for that time each day, scrolling down, at least I do. Why not have a look at one of those this week, once you go through the email? They're just helpful videos. Think, how might we persuade? How might we do that? If you feel you need help, and all of us do. Sometimes it's a fear of people. Sometimes we're not sure what to say. But third little reason, maybe we don't really believe in a day of judgment. Both that we as Christians will have to give an account before the judgment seat of Christ, but also a day of judgment for others standing before the Lord. It's reading not that long ago. Um, <coughs> about a guy called Rico Tice, who's probably been mentioned here before. He was the guy that created the Christianity Explored course. And in his book, he, um, he talks at one point about uh, giving a sermon that he 
that he had preached, and it was a tape of the sermon, okay? We're going back a few years before, you know, podcasts and CDs and those kind of things, to a tape that he gave to someone of one of his sermons, and he, he gave it to them and said, look, I preached this at church, see what you think. He gave it to his friend Ed from the rugby club, and Ed went home and listened to it with Dave, who was another guy from the rugby club who he lived with. And they put the tape in and fast-forwarded, maybe to the right point, and listened to it. And it got to the end of the sermon, and Dave just said, if that is what Rico believes, the fact he's said nothing of it to me in months means he's not really my friend. It's a sermon about grace, about judgment, these kind of things we're talking about. And Rico said that was like a dagger through his heart, that, that this guy who had been friends with and banter and loads of things for ages, but... Rico, oh gosh, he believes in this. He's not shared that with me. Is he really my friend? And he found that a great challenge to his evangelism. Motivation one, there is a day coming where we will have to give an account before the Lord. So in light of that, Paul says, I want to be a persuader. We need to help with that. We need to pray, don't we, for opportunities. We need to take risks. Watch those videos. Chat to others about it. The second thing they, that he talks about, the second motivation that gets him out of bed is the love of Christ. So if motivation one was kind of future, day of, of Christ, the day in the future, the second motivation is looking back in the past as he looks at the love of Christ shown on the cross. Let me read from verse 14. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The second motivation then is, is, the, is the rich and vast love of Jesus Christ. Not our love for him, but his love for you. Some of you might have been just reading that verse and trying to it's a bit cryptic, all these alls and who's it for. And maybe some of you think, well, the alarm bell's going off here. One died for all. Did Jesus really die for all people? Isn't that called universalism? Did I learn that once? That everyone will be saved in the end? Well, we need to ask the question, don't we? What does Paul mean by the word all? And it's this, that the death that all Christians should have died because of sin, Jesus died instead. He died as our representative, as our substitute on the cross. The logic of it is this, that if we are joined to Jesus, his death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. A verse should come up on the screen from Galatians 2 that puts it like this. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do, do you see the link? Do you see the motivation here? That because Paul is so convinced that Jesus' death will be effective for all who trust in him, it compels him. It compels him to persuade others of this good news. But it also, more than that, it, th this love compels him to no longer live for himself, but now live for Jesus. Jesus. Because the love shown on the cross, as we look at the cross where Jesus died, it, 
It turns our lives upside down, doesn't it? Maybe you can remember in your life the, the day that you became a Christian. Maybe some of us can't remember the day, others can. But because of the cross, there's a, there's a no longer element to every single Christian. No longer do we live under the, the penalty of sin. No longer do we live under the power of sin. The effect of living under the cross and resurrection is that we live for Jesus now. Center of gravity in, in our lives is no longer on us, but it's Jesus. Indebtedness. Thankfulness to him. It means we're never the same. Maybe you're sitting here this afternoon and you think, do you know, the, the cross is... It's never actually really made any impact on my life. It never has. It doesn't at the moment. Can I ask you if that's the case? Have you ever truly grasped the love of Christ for you? Paul will put it like this next week. That that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for you. That in him you might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus went to the the cross, he didn't begrudgingly lay down his life for you, a sort of roll of the eyes, I've got a better, you know, I've got to die for them. No passion for you led him to the cross because he loves you. And actually this motivation of the love of Christ, it's led many both in the present and the past, to be missionaries all over the world, to the far corners of the world. The love of Christ has compelled people to go. And so I was reading just this week about the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you might have have come across an American couple um, in the last century. And and they, they were compelled by the love of Christ that they wanted to go to South America and where there was a jungle there of people who had never been reached by the gospel. And so they learned the language and kind of went through all the training and those kind of things. And, and Jim Elliott went out first on a plane with some of his friends and they had learned the language. They're circling around the place where this jungle was and they were dropping gifts for the people there. And then they landed the plane. They were seeking to sort of share their lives, get to know them, share the gospel. But actually, as soon as they landed, pretty much, Jim Elliott was killed by the local people in this jungle. But Elizabeth Elliot, who was back at home, his wife, rather than hating these people who had done this to, their, to her husband, she was so compelled by the love of Christ, both that she knew that love, Christ loved her, but that Christ also loved these people, that what did she do? Well, later she got on a plane and went back to that jungle where her husband had been killed, and the plane landed. You know, her life was a risk going there, but she, well, she cared for the people, She shared her life with the people. She shared the good news of of Jesus. And many people from that tribe came to faith in Jesus Christ. Amazing, right? See, it's not guilt or personal fulfillment or or our reputation that should drive us to persuade others. It's the love of Christ. And so if we're going to be persuaders... Well, we need to be people who are regularly drinking from the well of Christ's love for us, demonstrated at the cross. Makes sense, doesn't it? I wonder if that's something that you're doing at the moment. The last song that we're going to sing, I think, after the sermon, or the next song, speaks of this. Here is love. 
fast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Amazing words. I wonder if you ever listen to songs, listen to music that speak about the love of Christ, maybe on your commute into work as you walk in or get the tube or whatever it might be. Or whether on the Christmas list, as we talked about Christmas in a, in a few weeks' time, maybe on the Christmas list there could be a book that you ask for about the cross of Christ as you want to dwell on that, think about that more. See, like Paul, like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, nothing motivates us like the, well, the wonderful, ocean-like love of Jesus Christ. Paul fear the Lord. He was motivated by the love of Christ. The third and final thing from verses 16 to 17 that he was motivated by was new creation transformation. And here's really a change of outlook in verse 16 if you look down. It says this, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. These verses then show what Jesus is bringing about through the gospel, and it's astonishing. It's astonishing. See, the old outlook for Paul was that he would view people, it says here, from a worldly point of view, or according to the flesh is the literal translation. And, and we do this all the time, right, don't we? <laughs> As we look at people, we, we view people by the externals, you know, wealth, education, looks, status, you know, as we look at one another. And before Paul was converted, he did that. And he even judged Jesus that way. He saw him as a, a fake Messiah. He thought Jesus was weak because he was crucified on a cross. He saw him as a sort of Palestinian pretender. But after Paul was converted, everything changed. He was convinced that Jesus alone was the, was the only hope, the only one that could reconcile us to God. And Paul's eyes were open to see what God was bringing about in others, regardless of status or lack thereof. And, and look what God was bringing about in verse 17, our last verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Is this most, not one of the most precious descriptions of what happens when someone becomes a Christian? Those two little words in verse 17, in Christ, they're like dynamite, okay? If we are joined to, to Christ, that means we are joined to him by faith and, and we are a new creation. That is your story if you trusted in Jesus and it's my story as well. It's a radical change that the old life has gone, the new life has come and that changes that change is open to anyone to become a new creation. Someone might look the same on the outside after they've become a Christian, the same sort of bags under the eyes or spots or sore back or whatever it is. But actually on the inside, something incredible has happened. The old life has gone, the new has come, a transformation, part of the new world that God is bringing about. We often focus, don't we, on, on our, our struggle with sin sometimes, don't we? <laughs> How we're battling or fighting sin. We talk about those things. And of course, the Bible talks about that as well. But the emphasis here is what has already 
happened because of the cross, that we are a new creation. That miracle has already happened in our life. And Paul is motivated by that. It is spurred on by the extraordinary work of what, what God is bringing about in people like you and me, knowing that one day God will make all things new. So do you have the, the outlook of Paul or, or God as you look at other people? Or do you view people from a worldly point of view? On a Sunday, if someone comes into the church and they're a sort of confident city type from maybe coming in here, but they're not a Christian, are you sort of more attracted by that and think, oh, that's wonderful? Or, or the single mum who's come in, who's, who's struggling in life, but, but actually they're a new creation. They're in Christ. How do you judge people? How do you view people? Well, Paul might challenge that. He's amazed by what God is doing in unlikely people. I remember a few years ago, uh, a friend of mine was saying that he, he went to a Christian conference and it been a really good day, really good conference. He was walking back at the end of the day to the tube and he was following two guys, quite big guys, head to toe in leathers, tattoos, kind of um, piercings and stuff. And, and this guy was, my friend was following them along and he was thinking, oh, I've just heard so many good things at this conference, but... Could the gospel ever you know, reach people like them? Um, how could I reach that, you know, with the, the love of Christ? And just kind of thinking this through in his head. And he, he walked a bit faster, carried on. And he saw that one of these blokes had the conference brochure under his, under his arm. And he had already been at the conference. And my friend felt quite challenged. I was viewing you from a sort of, I oh, didn't say this to him. But in his mind, he was thinking, I, I was viewing him from a worldly point of view. But actually, this guy... Well, he was a new creation. One of my best friends, um, his wife had a baby this week, her first child, and I've been, we've been peppered with lots of sort of photos and videos of, of, this, of this newborn mostly sleeping. It's very sweet. We're pleased to be involved getting these photos. And that is exciting. But actually, in bringing about a new creation in someone, that's even more powerful, isn't it? And that's something that can motivate us. It can lead us to rejoice. So let's get on board as we finish. Let's get on board. Keep going with a type of ministry that is motivated by, by the past, by the future, sorry, by, by fear of the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ. Let's keep that in mind. But also be motivated by the past as we look back to the cross and, and the love of Christ but also the present as we see what Christ is doing now in the world of bringing new creations, transforming people. See, our ministry might look pretty weak, as we've been saying. It might look pretty ordinary, but it is glorious. It is powerful. So take pride in this kind of ministry. Don't give up. It is glorious. Let me pray. I'll just leave a moment. For us to think through what we've heard, some of those motivations, what spoke to us particularly, and then I'll lead us in a prayer.
Father God in heaven, we're people that, that need reasons, need motivations to do what we do uh, generally in life, but particularly with Christian ministry where it's easy for us to fall into bad habits or lose heart or do things for the wrong reasons. Thank you for these reasons that you've so kindly given us in your words, that these were three things that got Paul out of bed in the morning. And I pray that as you are at work in us, Lord, you would help these reasons, these motivations be, be things that we can grab hold of as we go into our week to come, as we think about the people in our lives that we know, would we be motivated by the fear of the Lord, the judgment seat, also by the love of Christ shown at the cross. May we dwell on that more and more, even in conversations after this service, but also in this amazing transformation that you bring about in people like us here at Trinity. Will that inspire us and motivate us to the glory of God. Amen.